Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil. I'm super excited for our guest today. Today, we have a superstar, Rob Bearsley. So Rob oversees acquisitions and capital markets for the firm and has acquired over $300 million of multifamily real estate. So he has evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models and published the number one book on multifamily underwriting, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. And he has also written over 50 articles about underwriting, deal structures, and capital markets and hosts the Capital Spotlight podcast, which is focused on interviewing institutional investors. Rob, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, excited to be here. So, Rob, I know a little bit about you and your background. You know, we haven't quite met in person, but you've been doing some really good stuff in the real estate space. I'd love for the listeners to learn a little bit more about you, your background, who you are, and like, how did you get to where you are today, where you, you know, you're overseeing over $300 million in real estate? Yeah. So my business partner and I, we met almost five years ago and we started Lone Star Capital, which is the company that we run today. And like you said in the intro, Lone Star Capital has acquired over 300 million in assets in the last about four years. And we are also a vertically integrated multifamily owner operator. So we're here based in New York, but we have a property management company that we launched based in Houston. And nearly the entire portfolio is based in Houston, all in Texas. So from there, we've got our boots on the ground operations that we're scaling out as we look to continue to focus in Texas and build the portfolio. Prior to forming Lone Star with my partner, I had real estate experience through my family. My family used to run a residential brokerage firm back in California. Growing up, my parents worked at home. I was around them on the phone doing deals, but everything was on the residential side from you know brokerage, construction, development. And so it wasn't until about six years ago that we got involved in multifamily. And that really got me a lot more excited than single family. I like the more institutional nature of it, the more investment, long-term cash flow focused nature of it. So those things resonated with me and I wanted to go all in a multifamily. And at the time, my parents were still focusing on their main business. So I went out and found my partner who I could go all in with on the multifamily side. And that's how Lone Star was born. That's great. That's great. So let's dive in because I know that you are focused on the institutional space and then also the retail capital space. You know, a lot of investors, they start off in the retail capital space and they just kind of stay within that realm because, you know, that's what they know, right? It's easy, it's comfortable. But the institutional side of things is a whole different ball game and a different amount of capital, right? Checks that they're willing to invest in your deal. You know, why focus on institutional, you know, real estate capital as well? And how did you get introduced to that space? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of having a diverse base of investors. I think it's risky to just be focused or reliant on one major investor or one type of investor. So we very early on, and this was really out of necessity, we started pursuing all types of capital because when we got started, we were like everybody else and raising capital was very difficult because we lacked the experience, the reputation, relationships. 
And that necessity just caused us to reach out to everybody and just start building relationships in all directions. So it wasn't necessarily this master plan, but once we got going, we realized the power and benefit of having not only just a retail network of investors, but also more sophisticated, more institutional relationships as well, like family offices and private equity firms. The other really awesome benefit of, like you said, getting out of your comfort zone and working with some of these larger groups is the experience and the knowledge that you get from working with an institutional investor, because they're going to force you to operate at a higher level, be more robust and transparent in your reporting. And all in all, it just makes you a better investment manager. So I think that's a huge plus as well. Yeah, 100%, man. I totally agree with that. You know, my background, as we, you know, touched on before the show, was in real estate private equity. And I specifically wanted to get trained on that level, which I knew was a high level before I went off and did my own business full time. You know, we were syndicating deals while I was doing that. But just being able to like learn from people who are doing things at a high level, I mean, talk about like the top 1%, you know, that's how I look at institutional capital. Right, is that they have all the research, they have all the experience, they know markets very deeply, and being able to latch on or be surrounded in that space, it's no different from the notion of you are, you know, the number six out of the five people that are in your circle, right? I mean, just being surrounded by a wealth of knowledge is really, really cool when you're trying to grow your real estate portfolio. So, what are the pros and cons about? dealing with institutional capital, you know, because it's, in my experience, in the institutional side, I mean, there can be a lot of red tape (laughs) before they invest with you, right? Versus residential, where it might be, you know, a little bit more emotional, right? Talk about like the pros and cons when partnering up with institutional capital. Yeah. Well, first off, there's a lot of myths associated with that space as well, but there are truly pros and cons. And some of the cons would be, like you said, the red tape and the extra due diligence. It's very rigorous due diligence and time consuming. And they're very picky. So you might spend a lot of time pitching deals. And in the end, you might not get any capital. And then kind of what you mentioned on the retail side, where it's a bit emotional, it's more relationship based, where, you know, smaller investors are less they don't have the time or the expertise to really drill into the numbers and do their own analysis. So they're really looking to partner with people that they trust. So it's not easy to build that trust and establish those relationships. But once you have it, it makes it a whole lot easier to raise capital and do it again and again and again. Whereas in the institutional space, relationships really matter. It's not like everybody's a robot on the institutional space. And if you just send them the deal with the right numbers, then boom, you're going to get capital, right? There's definitely relationships involved and more qualitative. But with that being said, even if you have a institutional relationship and they love you to death, but you don't bring them the right deal, they're going to pass on the deal, right? At the end of the day, it has to make sense. It has to get through their underwriting, which is very rigorous. So that certainly can be viewed as a con. But I'd say the two biggest cons that people talk about are economics and control. And first off, control, I think is not a big deal. You know, I think people overreact to giving up control in the deal. I don't really see that as an issue. At the end of the day, you're giving major decision rights to a very savvy group or a savvy partner. So I don't see that as a negative at all. And at the end of the day, it's mostly their money. So they should be able to make major decisions. I think that's just only fair. So I think people who are new or just haven't had experience in the institutional side, they freak out when they hear about some of the control that they have to give up. But I think it's worth it and makes a lot of sense. And then on the fee side, this is a very real reality. 
you're going to make less money, right? The fees are lower because it's a one-stop shop. They're giving you all the capital in one check, saving you time and effort. But in exchange, you're going to get beat up on the fees. You're going to get beat up on the waterfall. And something that we talked about before recording is on the retail side, there's all sorts of different structures. People can throw anything at their investors. And since investors are mostly investing based on trust and relationship, they'll go along with it. You know, There's certainly some retail investors that are experienced and educated. And so they know what a good structure looks like. But a lot of them don't, unfortunately. But on the institutional side, everybody knows what the right structure is. And <laughs> no one's getting away with weird structures over there. So that could also be viewed as a con. But you know, we take our kind of quote institutional structures and bring it to the retail space. And we keep things pretty consistent, of course, with some higher fees. But that's to offset the extra effort that we go through to handle that process and handle investor relations. So that is really big. And also, I'll add one more thing. I know that this is a long one, but something that's really interesting that has happened only in the last couple of years is the reality of sponsors being able to raise crazy amounts of retail capital. And that is because of social media and it's because of just the increase of popularity in this industry. More people are learning about syndication, more people are finding out about the benefits of private real estate investing. And through technology, you're seeing people being able to raise retail capital that's 10, 20, 30, $50 million at a time, which has never been done before. And this is really competing and actually defeating the middle market private equity guys. Because if you were previously playing in that space where you were a smaller private equity firm writing $10 million checks, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of sponsors out there that don't need you or don't want you anymore because they can raise their retail capital, keep control, charge higher fees, do their structure. And so I really see that as a major disruptor to that middle market space. And I think that's something interesting to keep an eye on. That's a really good point. And I'm glad that you touched on that too. I have been witnessing that and I have been talking to other investors who are raising that amount of capital. I think the biggest thing is just speed, right? Because in the institutional space, there are a lot of red tape that you have to kind of go through, specifically taking your deals to investment committee. And it takes a lot of time when you're in that retail capital space. I mean, you're just like, you can move almost as quickly as just a mom and pop operator, right? If you see a deal, you like it, you put it on the contract, you get to raise money, right? And I think that that alongside with the underwriting, which we're going to talk about, you know, today as well, I think that there's more flexibility in the mom and pop space or the regular investor or the retail capital investor compared to the institutional side of things where you sometimes they tend to want to stay in a specific bucket. Like, for example, on your exit cap rate, you know, adding a certain amount of basis points to be conservative. Is that something that you're seeing as well when you kind of take a look at the different paradigms between retail and institutional capital? Yeah, both groups can be rigid and flexible in their own ways. And that goes back to the point why it's important to have relationships and the ability to raise both if you want to put yourself in the best position to do deals. And that's because just to use dramatic examples, if you have a deal that has no cash flow, like a heavy value add turnaround or a development play, that's going to be a lot harder to raise on the retail side because retail investors are more primed and looking for cash flow. Whereas institutional investors, they've got their IRR parameters and Many of them don't need any cash flow. They're just solving for total returns. So they're fine investing in a deal, waiting two years and seeing returns later. So it just depends on the deal. You know, different styles of equity can be more flexible, more rigid. Certainly, if you know about the speed that you mentioned on the retail side, you're as fast as you are. 
if you have the relationships and the skill to raise equity quickly, then you can close quickly. But at the same time, there are institutional groups that that's what they specialize in as well, right? They'll tell you, hey, we're not the cheapest partner, but if you need to close in a week, we can do that. We can make it happen. And maybe they even have the ability to close all cash and then refinance on the back end because they have a balance sheet. So it just depends on the types of deals that you're looking to do and then to match it up with the right equity. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to break that down to kind of give some context between the two sides of the world. So talk about the structures a little bit, you know, the differences that you might be doing between retail capital and institutional capital. You know, are you doing a lot of, you know, maybe IRR hurdles in the retail space versus the institutional space? Talk a little bit about that so our listeners could kind of understand, you know, the difference between those two worlds. Yeah. And without getting too wild and talking about all these different structures that exist, you know, really, let's just stick kind of to the main type of deal structure where you have a preferred return and then a waterfall where there's promote splits. And in that scenario, the biggest difference that you see is really in how the preferred return is put together. So on the retail side, most deals have a preferred return, but it's most often not compounding which means that if the preferred return is not paid in a certain pay period, let's say in a quarter or a year, the difference may accrue and still be owed, but it won't compound. So in a truly institutional preferred return scenario, if you don't pay the preferred return, it will accrue and compound to the next pay period. So that way, if investors aren't earning that return, they're actually going to earn you know, the preferred return rate on that balance. So it's that's the compounding way. You're earning interest on the money that you didn't get to compensate you for not getting it at that time. So that perfectly makes sense. I think that's fair, right? A sponsor like me should be penalized for not paying my investors at a certain time, right? I should be penalized for paying later rather than sooner. So that's a big difference that you'll see, the compounding nature of the preferred return versus non-compounding. And then the other big piece of the preferred return is the return of capital component or the the IRR hurdle that you mentioned. So on the retail side, like I said, most preferred returns are non-compounding. And also once the preferred return is hit, then the sponsor can start making money and they can start participating in the profits. But on the institutional side, that doesn't happen. The way it works is first the preferred return has to be met. Then all of the invested capital has to be returned back to investors. And then the sponsor can participate in profits. So that's that extra layer of protection for investors to make sure that they're getting their capital protected and getting a minimum return before the sponsor gets any performance compensation. So that's a more fair way to go, in my opinion. You know, we did it the Mm -hmm. old way when we started out, but then once we did a deal with an institutional partner and we were exposed to this new way with the compounding IRR hurdle, you know, we really thought it was just simpler, made more sense, more fair. So we took that structure and now we do it on all of our deals with including, you know, just our simple retail deals. And I think our investors appreciate that. Yeah. So let me ask you a question because, okay, so you're saying that within the retail space, you do take that compounding pref. Let's say, for example, if the deal goes south, right? You're not able to like meet that pref. You know, say you have a, you know, an institutional partner, like, I don't know, a prudential or something like that, right? And they have this pref and then that pref is compounding and you're not able to pay them out. I mean, that just adds up over time. Are you saying that you do the same thing for the retail side of the capital too? Because I would imagine that you, as an investor, as a sponsor, you don't want to take on that necessary like stress at the same time too, if you don't have to. You know, what's the thought process on doing that? Is that just from a perspective of you want to position the deal 
you know, accretively for retail investors? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a better structure for investors. So we want to do that and highlight that for investors and tell them, here's our structure and make it a selling point and show them how they're being protected in that structure. So I think that's number one. Number two, yeah, I mean, like you said, if the deal is not going well, you're going to be behind no matter what. And it's not going to be fun. And, you know, you're not going to be really benefited by having a compounding or non-compounding prep. It'll just be bad regardless. So I think that's not a big deal. And then if the deal does go well, it's also not that big of a deal because preferred returns typically these days are around, in the retail side, are around 7 to 8%. And very few deals actually cash flow on an average basis across the life of the deal greater than 7 to 8%. That's just the reality of the market these days. That could certainly change. But given that's the way that that is in the market right now, it means that you're not really as a sponsor going to make promote on cash flow anyway. So you might as well subordinate your promote to the return of capital and not worry about trying to get any promote out of the cash flow anyway. Just manage the deal well, you know, deliver all cash flow to investors. And we do monthly distributions also. So it's really simple for us. We can tell investors, hey, look, we give monthly distributions and we take all available free cash flow and give it 100% to investors, right? We're not taking anything on the cash flow. Once we sell the deal and get you your minimum IRR of 8% and all your money back, then that's when we start participating in the profits. So to us, we don't see it as this huge downside to us, but a huge benefit to investors, right? So if we can give something away that doesn't cost us, in our opinion, that much, but it is worth a lot to the investors, we think that's a really good trade. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That makes total sense. Let me ask you a question. So when we talk about the revenue side of this business, right, because we're also in this business to make a profit, but then I also want to touch on your growth patterns of vertical integration, right? I think I heard you on another podcast talk about you having an in-house property management company, right? And you're working to create a construction side of things for in-house. Was that part of your goals to scale to be more attractive to institutional investors? And is that also your goals to, one, offer that return structure to investors, but also still be able to bring in revenue through your business through the different streams like property management and construction management fees and you know, that sort of thing that you can also make money in between because there's money to be made in between the deals as well, right? Is that kind of like your thought process on that? Yeah, I would say the first point you said is absolutely right. And that's the primary motivation. One of the primary motivations of bringing property management in-house and the institutional space, it's much harder to raise capital if you use third-party management. That doesn't mean third-party management is bad or if you bring it in-house, all of a sudden you're going to raise a bunch of money but it is helpful to have vertically integrated operations to sell yourself and your team to institutional capital. So that's definitely number one. And we've been working towards that goal for years. And then finally, a year ago, we did launch our management company. And based on our current scale, which we manage at the moment around 2,200 units, the property management company basically breaks even. So it's not really bringing us that much revenue. But The interesting thing is if we wanted it to be profitable, we could. We would just not hire as many people. But because we are trying to run the management company at break even, basically, we're able to have more staff, corporate staff that can focus on the portfolio, make sure the portfolio is performing well, and we implement our business plans better. It makes it well worth it, right? It's better to run the property management company at a break even, let's say, but then that helps the 
private equity side of the business, be much more successful, help us raise more capital, grow faster, sell deals more profitably. That's the strategy that we're taking right now. Yeah. And that's typical, you know, when people are growing an in-house property management firm is that it's a loss leader, you know, until you can kind of get it to a point where you can break even. And you're definitely 100% on the money, you know, institutional capital. Uh, they like to see those vertical integrations. They like to see that you have control specifically in the management side of things because you get much more value when you have people just focusing on your properties only and they buy into your mission and what you want. And you can kind of instill some of those values that you have for your company into the property management systems as well. So that's really cool how you were able to transition and grow that to where you are today. So. If you're interested in passively investing in high quality real estate opportunities, then join our investor group at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash invest for direct access to carefully vetted real estate opportunities or head over to the show notes and click the link to join. Now let's get back to the show. I know you talk a lot about like underwriting. And I want to dive into that a little bit more because I know our listeners today may be stuck on underwriting. One of those things where it's like single family underwriting, you have like a 1% rule and, you know, you have all these little rules that you learn from bigger pockets. You know, what gravitated you to the side of the underwriting business and drove you to write the book, Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily? My being a numbers guy, that was where I gravitated to first. I wanted to understand the business. I wanted to understand the numbers that drove the business. So I started learning the underwriting side of things right away. And then I built my own underwriting model, which also taught me a lot, just understanding how to put a model together, how it works, why it works. And just underwriting you know, well over a thousand deals has provided that intuition to understand deals better. And then the book was a really cool thing to kind of give back to the community because when I started to learn underwriting in the multifamily business, there really wasn't any resource like that out there. So I learned just by looking at deals, talking to brokers, lenders, investors, and just getting feedback and then improving my understanding and my underwriting, improving my underwriting model itself. And I knew that once I built up the expertise, I would want to write something or you know, write a book to be able to share this process directly. No fluff, no kind of textbook type of abstract language, but just actually this is how you look at this is how we look at a deal every day. And of course, there's no right or wrong. So it's not like we're trying to say this is the only way to underwrite deals, but we are super transparent in showing you this is our process. This is the model that we use and everything is available for free. Yeah. No, and you had some really good content out there on underwriting and our listeners should definitely check out your content out there on underwriting because it's such an essential part of this business. You know, it's the financial blueprint to commercial real estate, right? If you don't know how to follow your underwriting, I mean, you can't necessarily produce the returns that you think that you can for your investors. So it's a really important side of the business that people who are trying to get into commercial real estate need to latch on to as early as possible. So in the context of underwriting, you know, how are you managing risk in today's environment. You know, I know over the past like year or two, three years, there's been this talk about like conservative underwriting. And for the longest time I've been thinking like, you know, everyone's, you know, underwriting conservatively. Is no one like getting any deals or how is everyone getting all these deals? Like so how are you managing risk and underwriting deals in today's environment given the 
everything that's going on between interest rates and the whole world is turning upside down. And then also being able to like stay competitive and not just be too conservative because there's a ton of people looking for multifamily and we can't possibly be conservative on every single number to win deals today. Yeah, exactly. The person who's bidding who's the most conservative is the person who's never going to win the deal. So you have to be optimistic, you have to be aggressive, and that's how you win a deal. So that's just kind of myth number one. Definitely conservative underwriting doesn't really make sense. You could try, and I think it's smart to be conservative where you can and where it makes more sense to be conservative than other places. But on the whole, if you just try to be you know, underwriting to worst case scenario, then it's just never going to work. You might as well just keep your cash in the bank. But for us today in this market environment, we have radically changed our strategy, and mainly on the debt side, where we've reduced leverage substantially and we're borrowing not from typical you know, CLO bridge lenders, but we're borrowing from banks at around 65% leverage. And that's giving us the best terms. That's giving us the least amount of risk because of that equity cushion by having lower leverage debt. So that's really important to feel comfortable with the deals today. But even doing that, it doesn't guarantee you the deal because leverage cuts both ways, right? But having less, it might keep you more safe, but then it's going to magnify returns less. And now it's going to be harder to actually make the numbers look attractive. So I think another element to that is if, you know, as much as you can, re-educating your investors on what is a good deal and what numbers should you be expecting And these are some of the things you have to do on the retail side, because retail investors are more so trusting you and your experience to know, okay, is this a good deal? Are these returns acceptable? But it's hard to do that when you might have another sponsor that that investor is looking at and that sponsor is promising them 20% returns. So there's only so much you can do. And, you know, that's just a reality of the business, but on the institutional side, they're very realistic about the numbers and they don't need you to sell them a 20. You need to be aggressive and excited and sell them the deal, but you can't be unrealistic. Yeah, no, that's true, man. It's challenging out there in today's environment. And I think, you know, you're hundred percent right when you talk about just educating your investors specifically on the retail capital side, because I mean, we're competing with the stock market from their eyes. Right. And when they don't hear things that are close to like 8%, if you come to them with a deal, that's like at 4%, you know, they'd probably be like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this deal here, you know, but, you know, on the institutional side, they look at things from a holistic perspective and they're a little bit more sophisticated in their approach and their analysis that would allow them to make a, you know, a decision to move forward with that sponsor. So really good nuggets there. So Rob, let me ask you a question. You know, you've been doing this for quite some time now. You've been having some like really good success up to where you are. You're still young and you have a bright future ahead of you. You know, if you were to start this whole marathon all over again? You know, what would you do differently? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the mistakes we made early, well, we made a lot of mistakes early on. So I'll share some of those. So the first mistake that I think is worth mentioning is we did not prepare well for the first deal. There's a lot of things you can do to prepare for your first deal before you actually have it. For example, you can line up your loan co-signer because most of the time when you're doing your first deal, you're not going to have the net worth, liquidity, and experience that the lender is looking for to get the loan. So that means you're going to need to have a co-signer that does satisfy those requirements. So there's nothing stopping you from going and building relationships and finding a co-signer that 
you align with before you actually have the deal. So that's number one, you know, we didn't do that. So then we were left to scramble and that's never a good position to be in. The other thing too, is we bought into the myth early on that if you find a good deal, the money will come. I love it. Yeah. It's a big myth and you need to dig the well before you're thirsty. And that's another one, not Mm. as easy to do. Can you repeat that again? I love that. I love the way that you said that. Can you repeat that again? Uh, Dig the well before you're thirsty. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If you have a deal under contract and you want to raise money, it's already too late. It's not impossible. You can still go and get it done. But the ideal thing is to be putting in the effort, building the infrastructure and relationships so that when you have the deal, now it's just a much more straightforward process of getting the investors involved, raising the money and closing the deal. It's never going to be smooth the first time, but if you can lay the groundwork, it will be a lot better. Yeah, man, that's really good. I think there's a ton of value there, you know, for people who are getting into this business, trying to get their first deal done. The money is probably the most important part, at least what I think, because, I mean, you can have a good deal, but that, like you said, it doesn't mean that someone's just going to bring a check to your front door, right? You have to have that capital primed. And in today's environment, you really have to be able to, in some respects, move quickly, right? Things are going to change and sometimes you can't control it, but that's really good. I think And another thing, too, is just preparation, right? If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. I always say it all the time. And being able to get educated and look at underwriting materials that you have and other resources that are out there to kind of prepare yourself to do your first deal or to be successful in the real estate space, just spending time on preparation, you know, has always been able to lead me to success. And I'm sure, you know, it's the same thing for you as well. So, Rob, talk about your upcoming book that's coming up and also the event, you know, the LSC New York Summit 2022. Yeah, really excited about both of those things. So starting with the book. So after uh, two long years, I'm uh, finally ready to publish my second book. This one's called Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate. So it actually goes into very high detail on a lot of the topics we talked about today from deal structures, how to raise retail capital, institutional capital, debt structures. So for me, I look at this next book as a building upon the first one, right? The first book is the definitive guide to underwriting. So once you learn to underwrite and find good deals, then the next step is how do you actually put the debt and the equity together for that deal as deal structure can be critical. It can make or break a deal, right? You might find a great deal at the right price, but if you don't have the deal structure to back it up, it could not work out. So I'm really excited about this new book and we'll actually be giving away copies at our LSC NY Summit, which is an event that we're hosting coming up in just a month here in New York. And the point of this event is we bring in kind of the best of our network, some of our high level investors and sponsors, and we have roundtable discussions and equity panels, deal presentations live in front of institutional investors. So it's a lot of fun. And yeah, we definitely put on a good intimate conference. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that sounds really good. That sounds amazing. So awesome stuff. So Rob, you know, tell us a little bit about how our listeners can follow you, you know, keep up with what you're doing and potentially invest in your projects. Yeah. The best way to keep up with all that is on our website, lscre.com. That stands for Lone Star Capital Real Estate. So lscre.com on our website, we've got the free underwriting model download link to the underwriting book, soon the link to the second book. 
So we'll definitely be pushing that out and hoping to, you know, sell as many copies in the first month, get the Amazon reviews up. So definitely looking forward to that. And then finally, if you want to get in touch to learn more about investing with us, you can do that on the website as well. Rob, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We talked a lot about institutional capital, how you're raising institutional capital, the difference between institutional and retail, underwriting. I mean, there's just a ton of knowledge in this show today. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. And just remember, real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Run your own race. Thanks a lot, Rob. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.